We are in the book of Ephesians this morning, so you can grab your Bible and turn there, or it'll be on the screens. We're in chapter 4, starting in verse 25. And the phrase that Paul is using over the last half of the book of Ephesians is this, to... Uh, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, right? So he's laying out what it looks like to live out the gospel. The first half is all about believing it. What is it? What has God done? What is the truth? But the last half is all about how we live it. We just talked about it in life group, right? It's not enough to be hearers of the word. We're meant to be what? Doers, right? It's not enough to just, it is enough to believe, but we're meant to live it out, right? And so last week we saw that the gospel changes us. It transforms us from the old into the new. It takes the old man and it puts it off and it makes us something totally new, something different. And today Paul is going to get very specific. He's going to address five ways that the gospel transforms us into the new from the old. So let's read it. Uh, Chapter 4, starting in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me pray. God, we thank you for that truth that God in Christ has forgiven us, that we, God, we don't measure up. We've not been perfect. We've fallen short of the standard. God, but you are a good and kind and loving and gracious and forgiving Heavenly Father who wants us to be in relationship with you. And so you have graciously forgiven us. God, and so as we read this word this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we remember the forgiveness that we have received, God, may it motivate us to live out this new life. May it be the fuel to our fire. God, your love. God, we are not doing these things to try to earn your favor. God, we're doing these things because you have loved us greatly and you have forgiven us. So I pray that this morning your word would make sense. And I pray that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers. And we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So Paul's going to address five things this morning. He's going to address five different ways that we live out the gospel. Let's look at the first in in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one 
of another. He says we are to put away. This is the same language he just used a few verses earlier, that we are to put off the old self. We are to take off those clothes that define the old self, and we are to put on the new. He says, and that's what he's going to do today. He's going to talk about the old self, what we used to be like, and then he's going to talk about the new self, right, and what it looks like. He says we are to put away falsehood. Falsehoods are lies, mistruths, anything that is uh, misleading. Now, we have a lot of words in our culture for this, and maybe when we think of politicians, we think of falsehoods, right? And somehow they can get away with speaking things that are not true and still be elected to office. Makes no sense to me why we would trust them with that power, right? But, but we do the same thing, and we justify all kinds of falsehoods. Right? Does anybody have friends? Don't, please don't point at this point in the service. It could be you, but maybe, and maybe this is you, but do you have friends that when you ask people to bring stuff or say, hey, will you be there at 7 o'clock, and they answer, yep, sign me up for potatoes, or I'll be there at 7. How, do you have friends that you know there's no way they're bringing potatoes, and there's no way they're showing up at 7? Anybody? Everybody, can you think of that person in your life? Most of us can. As Christians, we are not to be known for falsehoods of any kind. Our word should be to speak the truth. I love the way John Stott says it. He says this, Fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. And so falsehood undermines fellowship, while truth strengthens it. I think that summarizes what Paul is trying to say today, that when we live out the old life as Christians, it destroys our unity. It divides us. It separates us. It causes us to not want to trust one another, not want to be on the same team, not want to go in the same direction. This is true in families. This is true in friendships. And this is true in the church. Right? If we have a relationship built on falsehoods, we, we don't stay united. And so what does he say? No, that's the old life. He says, put it away. He says, rather, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. He immediately says that we should replace this negative, this destructive behavior of falsehoods, and we should replace it with the truth. That we are to be known as honest, reliable people who can be trusted. That, that when we say something, our word can be trusted as true. Not only that, we're speaking the truth. We're not condoning sin. We're not going, you know what? God's just going to forgive everybody in the end and all will be saved. That's not what we believe. We believe the only way to be saved is through Jesus. Right? We have to speak the truth even if it hurts sometimes. We are meant to be truth tellers. But this, this plays out in our relationships in so many ways. And, and we can think of marriage, and you can think of friendship, and you can think of small groups and the whole church, right? There is no room in, in the body of Christ to mislead, to speak, the, to speak falsehoods. And that's why he says, let you, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. He's really talking about the church. Now, he's not saying it's, it's, we're going to tell the truth to each other and we're going to lie to the world. That's, that's not his point. So don't, don't take that from here. But he's emphasizing that if we're members of the same body, we should not speak falsehoods to each other. It's wrong of me to tell my broken leg that it's not broken, right? That's, 
No, no, no. I should speak the truth, right? We need the truth. And so Paul's primary concern is the unity, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that he's just talked about earlier. And truth leads to unity. We need the truth. We don't need to be coddled and flattered and spoken all kinds of things that are not true. No, we need the truth. We also need grace. We also need forgiveness. And we're going to talk about those. But the only way we can be renewed and made new in Christ is to have the truth. This is the first way that we live out the gospel is that we speak the truth always. I think, I think as we do this, as we read each one of these, we're so, man, this is not in my notes. I'm going off script here. We are prone to feel either conviction or arrogance. Probably prone to feel, man, I'm really good at that. And we, we kind of move closer on that side. Or we're, we're prone to conviction. Man, I'm not good at that. And, and this morning, as, we're, man, as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper and what Christ has done for us on the cross, that he died for us when we were not good enough. And he died for us in our arrogance that we think we are good enough. He, he bore all of that on the cross. And so as we read each one of these this morning and we think about our own life and we think about where we've fallen short, we're not meant to, to wallow in, oh God, you don't love me because I messed up. No, remember the gospel, that he does love you, and he died for you while you were yet sinners. But don't also, don't self-exalt and go, man, I've really got this thing figured out. That's, no, the point of the gospel is to remind us that we can't do this on our own, and we need Christ. So let's look at the second one, verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. He says, be angry and do not sin. Kind of an interesting phrase. We talked about it in our life group this morning. So is, is Paul commanding us to be angry? Is he? What do you think? I, know, I got a bunch of blank stares this morning. Well, not really, no. This is not a command to be angry. It's a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew idiom that's taken to mean when you're angry, do not sin, right? So he's saying when you experience anger, we're not to let it lead to sin. Anger is an emotion, and God created our emotions, and our emotions are our flesh's response to things, what we feel about a situation. So anger is not necessarily wrong. There is such a thing as righteous anger. If, if I see something wrong, I see somebody hurting someone else, I see on kids on the playground, think about this, right? You see somebody getting hurt or being bullied, it's right to say, no, that's not okay. It's right to feel anger and be led to action. That's good. But our anger is not meant to lead us down the road of more sin. That's what he's saying. He says, be angry and do not sin. We don't let our emotions control us. But he's also saying that if we do allow anger and unresolved anger to fester, to stick around, then it hurts us, right? That's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you don't resolve your anger, you don't work it out why you're angry, you don't, you don't go talk to the person, and we're going to talk about some of those in a second, that's what leads to sin, is not resolving our anger. 
And our enemy wants to allow anger, our frustrations, our differences. He wants that to divide us. He wants that to stay between us. He wants that to, to limit our fellowship together. He wants nothing more than anger to take root and take hold and turn into resentment and despising and malice and slander and all these things he's going to talk about in a minute. We are not meant to harbor unresolved anger. That's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I grew up, uh, I probably grew up thinking this, this should always be interpreted literally, right? If Man, so, so in my mind, as just the rational, logical thinker, I'm going, what happens if we get into an argument at night? Like, does that mean I get until next sunset? Like, I got 20, so let's wait, let's have this argument at 6.30. No, 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 that's, that's not the point, right? What he's saying is we're not to allow anger to go unresolved, whether it be for a day, whether it be for a night, whether it be for weeks or for months or for years. It's probably good practice to say, you know what, it's bedtime, it's time to move on. Let's forget it, let's let go, let's forgive each other. But what he's really saying is don't let it take root in your heart, don't, let, don't harbor it. And I, I wanna take an aside here for a second because, because it's important that we know how to resolve our anger, how to deal with it, how not to let the enemy give us a foothold. And scripture is very clear. First, sometimes we just need to let it go. I've been singing this. Anybody seen the, the Disney princess movie, Frozen? Anybody seen it? Kids in the room, parents of young kids? There's a little tune in there that's a little catchy. You go, let it go, let it go. Uh, and to my kids recently, I've been singing this song because Hudson will come and tattle. Addie looked at me funny, right? Ellie touched me. Eddie's sitting on my chair, whatever it is. And I'll look at him and I'll say, let it go, let it go. Because that's, I don't, he doesn't need correction in that moment. What does he need? He needs to let it go. It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. She looked at you. She's got to look somewhere. <laughs> and we too, sometimes, our anger, our frustration with one another, we need to just let it go. Proverbs 19, 11. There's more wisdom than Disney movie. This is scriptural. <laughs> Proverbs 19.11, he says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If we have to address every little thing that comes between us, man, we've missed it. It is our glory to overlook an offense. We need sometimes to just let it go. Quit worrying about it. Quit thinking about it and move on. It's going to be okay. Now, here's the deal. Not every offense is like that. Sometimes we can't let it go. And so what does Scripture say? If it's a bigger deal, if there really is sin, what does he say? Matthew 18, 15. We got we to gotta talk. Duh. Right? We're not just going to sit here and think about it for a while and all of a sudden it's going to figure itself out. We're going to have to sit face to face and we're going to have to have a conversation. Here's what he says. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
The point is this, we have to talk to each other, not about each other, not behind each other, not around each other. We got to talk to each other. It's not always fun. Not many of us like confrontation, but if we're going to resolve our anger, we either got to let it go or we got to talk to the person. Now, I love Matthew 18 because it lays out that sometimes even that doesn't work. Sometimes two people try to work it out and they can't. They can't get on the same page. They can't figure out what's really wrong. One person doesn't want to. And what he says is sometimes you're going to have to bring in other people. You're going to bring in somebody that's trusted. Not your star witness that's going to show them their fault, okay? That's not what he's saying. But you're going to have to bring in somebody else to try to mediate, to try to help work this out. Why? This seems like so much work. The point is clear in this passage that our unity, our fellowship, our togetherness matters more. And Satan wants to use our anger, our frustration, our unresolved tension to separate. And, the, and God wants nothing more than to unite us back together, to reconcile us. So what he does, that's what it means to forgive, is that he has resolved his wrath against us. He's not allowed it to fester, and he's about to pour it out on us. He's not about to explode in, in frustration towards us. No, our God is kind and forgiving, and he has resolved his wrath against us. And so we're to do the same thing. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal. So apparently, this is, this is third on the list. Apparently, stealing was enough of an issue or so common that Paul had to address it as one of his first three real practical ways to live out the gospel, right? And, I, and we may think, man, stealing's not that common or stealing's not that prevalent or not something that I struggle with. But at the heart of stealing is often two things. It's either coveting, jealousy, or it's laziness. Those are the two kind of core motivate, two of the core motivations for why people steal, right? There's, man, I want what Alexis has. I'm going to go take it from her. But sometimes it's just laziness that I want what Alexis has, so I'm just going to take it, but I don't really want to work for what, I don't want to do what Alexis did, right? There's two things, and I think we all struggle with those. Man, I want what they have, but I don't want to work hard for it. We are prone to covet. We are prone to be lazy. We are prone to not want to work hard and provide for our needs. And sometimes that results itself in stealing. And he says neither stealing nor coveting nor laziness should define us because that destroys our unity too. And what he says is the opposite of that. That's the old life is stealing. But the new life is what? He says, rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The opposite of stealing is doing honest work, providing for your needs, working hard, doing something that's good for not just you, but good for others. You're not exploiting people. You're not swindling people. He says doing honest work. 
And honest work is also about learning contentment, right? That, that we may not, I'm not always going to have as much as the next person. That's okay. That's not the point. He says that we should be doing honest work to provide for ourselves. But he goes beyond that. It's not just, hey, quit stealing, get a job. He says, no. The point is, at the very last half of the verse, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So people, the goal of our hard work is not just that, that we would be provided for. What does he say? It's that we would have enough to share. That we not are just providing for our own family, but we're helping provide for others. It's not just that I would have enough, but that all would have enough. That's the point. So if stealing destroys our unity of coveting, comparison, and laziness, and not working hard, if that stuff divides us, how does hard work and generosity unite us? It ought to be clear, but as he says many times, the abundance of some would cover the needs of others, right? And the reality is that we, we all go through seasons of need and prospering and all that sort of stuff. And the point of being together and united in a community is that we would share those burdens and we would take care of one another. Not only that, if we are not working hard to have enough, there are no missions, there are no ministries, there's no gospel work, there's no gospel ministers that can devote themselves to this full time. If we're a bunch of stealers in the room, there is no church, there is no building, there is no missions, there is no gospel advancing. And so we have to learn to work hard and to be generous. In my life, I learned both of these from my papa. Papa Ray. And uh, Papa was born uh, and raised in the Depression. Uh, some of you elementary kids don't even know what that is. Uh, but he was raised in hard times. And Papa had nothing growing up. Uh, he, he was born to ungodly parents who knew nothing of God. And, and they just struggled, to be honest. And one day, one summer, some man came to the oil camp where Papa lived and invited them to a VBS and picked Papa up, Ray, and drove him, and God saved him at that VBS. And his life drastically changed from there. His life was never the same from that point on. And he married my grandmother, and they raised their kids to know and love the Lord. But I watched Papa growing up, and I learned two things from Papa, among many. One is woodworking, that's beside the point. I learned hard work, and I learned generosity. Papa worked hard. He worked hard for everything that he had, but Papa was generous. He carried cash in his wallet for the purpose of giving it away. He always had money on him to help those that he might have an opportunity to help. Papa wasn't rich, but Papa worked hard to provide for his needs and so that he would have something to share with anyone in need. We are meant to be like that. Not takers, not pulling from other people. We are to live out the gospel by working hard and by being generous. Look at verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
He's just used the word corrupt previously to describe us before we knew Christ. And corrupt is the idea of, of rotten fruit. That it may look fine on the outside. Oh man, I had this experience the other day. Somebody gave us some farm fresh eggs. Some yard eggs. And uh, we may have kept them a little too long before using them. Probably our own fault. And I went to make scrambled eggs one morning. And by all discernible measures, I looked at this egg, and it looked the same as the rest of them. And I had cracked a few already, and they were good. And I cracked it open, and it was a literal rotten egg in my scrambled eggs. And I don't know if you've ever smelled this atrocity. Uh, it is terrible. I'm gagging in my mind thinking about it. This is the word for corrupt. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. It's, it's translated unwholesome in some other places, but it's talk that leads, it's words that lead to death, not words that lead to life. Uh, there's the phrase, one bad apple spoils the bunch. One, I had this experience the other day with blackberries. One bad blackberry spoils the whole container, and one little one can be rotten, and it slowly spreads, and it fills up the whole container until you no longer get to enjoy those blackberries. That's the idea. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, because when we have corrupting talk, when we're tearing other people down, when there's divisiveness in our words, when there's death, when we're speaking evil, and he's going to talk about some of these later, what does it do? It spreads. And it leads to other people being torn down. And it's not just you who's corrupt, but it, now it's affecting other people. He says, this is not the way. We are not to have corrupt talk. Instead, he says, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear the goal of our speech as gospel people is to build up, is to give life, is to give encouragement, is to, to, uh, in, to, to build up, to construct. We're meant to help, not to hurt. We're meant to edify, not to tear down. We're not meant to cause doubt and dissension. No, we're meant to cause confidence in God's word and bring life with our words. Man, how are we doing in that? You think of so many environments where we use our words. Are we part of the solution in that group of people, or are we part of the problem? Are we bringing corruption to that environment, or are we bringing edification? Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we can't forget that the Holy Spirit is, is the third person of the Trinity, but he is not some impersonal force. He's not some, some just kind of like power that we, we tap into and we, oh, yeah. Right? He is a person. He takes on personhood traits. And part of those personhood traits that God has that, that we also have, not that we're, he's like us, but we're like him, part of that is, is that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Grieved means that they're sad or mourning. So he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit grieve? 
Well, he's grieved like a parent is grieved at their kids when they choose evil, not good. He's grieved when we, when we go back to the old man, not to the new man. He's grieved when we steal, not work hard. He's grieved when we take and not are generous. He's grieved when we don't resolve our anger, but we allow it to divide us. He's grieved when we speak falsehoods, not the truth. And I feel this in parenting, right? Like I look at my kids and I go, like I, there's so much better for you. Like today could be so good if we were just nice to one another. We could have a great day and laugh and enjoy. My kids are fun and funny. And it grieves me when we don't get to have that day, right? Because they're fighting and they're yelling and they're, my kids are good. I'm just, they're just easy targets, right? It grieves me as a parent. I know there's so much better. And I think God looks at us the same sometimes and he goes, why are you choosing that? There's so much better. There's so much, we can have a great day today. Choose life. Choose the new life. Don't go back to the old. It's not good for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll correct you and I'll love you and I'll bring you out of that, but, but choose the good. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we don't allow the gospel to take root in every area of our life. And the last one he's going to address, verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This list of our anger, our, our, our feelings of anger and lashing out, it grows in this, this list that he does. It grows from really small and internal to, to loud and big and external. He says bitterness first. Bitterness is this inward grumbling. It's this resentment, this frustration with one another against others. But you, people may not know you're bitter, right? And he says, let all wrath and anger. Sometimes our, that inner anger and frustration and turmoil burst out, right? That's what wrath and anger is. It's short burst of like a harsh word or an evil thing that we say. He says, clamor. Clamor is loud arguments, shouting matches, if you will. Right? It's growing from these little bits of anger inside our hearts to these loud expressions. And he says, and all malice. Malice is like a word that just sums up. If I've missed something in between here and there, all malice. He's saying this anger and this hatred of other people is not fit for the saints. It's destructive to our unity to be angry, to lash out, to hurt one another with our words. We're not to be marked by this. We're to be marked by, what does he say in verse 32? Kindness. Forgiveness. He says, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a duh statement, but we're not meant to hate one another. We're meant to love one another. We're meant to forgive one another. We're meant to be kind with one another and gracious. We're not to, to hold people to this high, high standard and always be frustrated with people and be bitter towards the people because they decided this and they said this. And we're not to live like that. We're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, understanding, 
and forgiving. And this is the point of the whole sermon, the last five, six words. As God in Christ forgave you. Why do we live this out? Why are we truth tellers? Why are we kind? Why do we forgive? All these other things. Because that's what God did to us. Why do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. Why do we speak the truth? Because he just said, the truth is in Jesus. And if we're going to claim to be in Christ, we speak the truth. And God spoke the truth to us. And even though it was that you are a sinner who desperately needs a Savior, we need to be told that truth. Why are we to work hard and be generous? Because Christ worked on our behalf. And he gave us something that we didn't deserve. He poured out his self. He sacrificed himself so that we could have life. Why are we to reconcile and not leave our anger unresolved? Because God did that. All of these, the reason we are to live like this is because this is how God has treated us. And this is the gospel that we proclaim. It's a gospel of grace, not of works. So as we talk about forgiveness at the end, and it's really appropriate. Now, I didn't plan this. This is just how it works out. God's good sometimes, all the time. Uh, it leads us straight to the Lord's Supper. That the reason we can forgive is because we've been forgiven. And as we read these today, as we think about this, and we may feel conviction today and we go, you know what? I've not lived this out like I ought to. It's okay. There's grace. There's mercy. We're not going to measure up. But God loved us anyway. And we may think we're so great. Let's remember how we got here. That it's only through Jesus. Jesus.